All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States are admonished to draw near and give their attention. Landmark Cases, C-SPAN's special history series produced in cooperation with the National Constitution Center, exploring the human stories and constitutional dramas behind 12 historic Supreme Court decisions. Number 759, Ernest Miranda... Petitioner versus Arizona. We'll hear arguments in number 18, Roe against Wade. Quite often, and many of our most famous decisions are ones that the court took that were quite uh, unpopular. Let's go through a few cases that illustrate very dramatically and visually what it means to live in a society of 310 million different people who help stick together because they believe in a rule of law. C-SPAN and the National Constitution Center welcome you to Landmark Cases, our 12-part history series exploring the people and the stories behind some of the Supreme Court's most famous decisions. Tonight you're going to be learning more about the Dred Scott case of 1857. Let me introduce you to our two guests who will be here to tell us more about the history and the impact of this case. Chris Bracey is at George Washington University Law School, where he's a professor there. He's also the co-editor of a book called The Dred Scott Case, Historical and Contemporary Perspectives. Welcome to our program. Thank you for having me. Martha Jones is at the University of Michigan. She's a history professor there, also the chair of the Afro-American and African Studies Program and co-director of the Race, Law, and History Program at the Law School. Glad to have you. In 1857, the Supreme Court ruled that blacks, whether free or slave, were not citizens of the United States. They also declared unconstitutional the Missouri Compromise, which limited the spread of slavery to new territories, saying that Congress didn't have the authority to prohibit slavery in the territories. So I'm going to ask you to set the table for us in the mid-1850s United States. What was the background that gave rise to this case? What was the country in the state up at that point? There are a few things that are important for Dred Scott, um, not the least of which is the Fugitive Slave Act. 1850 really marks um, a turning point in the nation's thinking about slavery, a rethinking of slavery. What do I mean? Um, here, the Fugitive Slave Act is understood to not only enable Southern slaveholders to reach into the North to retrieve those said to be fugitives, um, but it is said to nationalize slavery once again, make Northerners complicit in the institution, even in those states and territories that had abolished slavery. That's probably the most important context for Dred Scott. Well, the Supreme Court decides which cases it's going to hear. So why did it decide to take on the case of the slave Dred Scott? Well, I mean, again, you know, as, as, as uh, Martha was saying, this is a period of pro-slavery nationalism. Um, this is a case that allows the court the opportunity to take on one of the biggest and most divisive questions of the day, which is, is America going to be nationally a slave state? Uh, the court can decide its questions, of course. It has a discretionary docket. Um, but this is one that was going to be an issue for the court or the, or the legislature or the president going forward. And it was an opportunity to answer one of the more difficult questions facing a nation. Now, we are also trying to find connectivity between the cases in our series. Mm -hmm. Last was Marbury versus Madison. This is 50 plus years later, and it's really the first time that the court uses the judicial review process or power that it gave itself in Marbury. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. This is the first case since Marbury versus Madison where the court exercised that extraordinary power. 
recognizing that in Marbury Madison was a big step. It took 50 years for the court to do it again. Um, notice how the court does it in the most dramatic fashion. I mean, what, what really sets, Plessy, what sets uh, Dred Scott apart uh, is the fact that it is the ultimate anti-precedential case. It's exactly what you don't want to do. It's a cautionary tale. Um, and for the court to step in and exercise judicial, uh, ju uh, judicial review in this particular way and striking down the Missouri Compromise in this particular climate, uh, it was a bad political decision. Is it correct to say, and this is a question for both of you, that even inside the Supreme Court, Dred Scott decision is viewed as one of the worst that the court ever made? Oh, I think absolutely. I mean, you can talk to scholars from various perspectives on the Constitution, and most will agree that this was probably the most infamous Supreme Court decision. Here, um, critics say this is an instance of the court really reaching, overreaching into a political question, right? One, that it doesn't have the capacity, in fact, to resolve. Um, and in doing so, um, really damaging the court's reputation um, for years to come. So there are consequences not only for the nation on the question of slavery, but there are consequences for the standing of the Supreme Court going forward. So we're going to hear a lot of names during the next 90 minutes, but among them, a couple that are the most important. First of all, Dred Scott and Harriet Scott. Very briefly, who were they? So Dred Scott is a slave. He's born around 1800. Uh, um, he is a slave to the Blow family. They are in the Hampton Roads area of Virginia. Uh, they eventually move, uh, the family, uh, and the kids with the Bloke family and Dred Scott move to Alabama to become farmers. They buy a cotton plantation. doesn't really work out too well for them. So they decide to move to St. Louis, Missouri in 1830. They move Dred and the kids to St. Louis, Missouri and open up a boarding house, the Jefferson Boarding House. Uh, the next year, Eliza, uh, Elizabeth Taylor uh, Blow dies. And then the following year, Peter Blow actually passes as well. But before he does, he makes arrangements to sell Dred to Dr. Emerson. And it's, it's Dred Scott's sojourns with Dr. Emerson that ultimately connects him with Harriet. Well, great. And we're going to get a chance to get into more detail about those sojourns and why they became the crux of this case. I'm going to ask you to also briefly, because we'll spend more time later, who was Roger Tawney? Now, people are going to look at that name and always want to pronounce it Taney, but the common pronunciation is Tawney, correct? I think Tawney is correct. And Tawney is um, a former slaveholder a Marylander, a statesman. He's held public office in the state of Maryland. He was uh, attorney general for the state of Maryland, attorney general of the United States. And by the mid-1830s, he is, um, becomes chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. He is um, a colonizationist. That is, he is someone who advocates that uh, former slaves um, cannot live uh, peaceably in the United States, and they should be um, removed voluntarily to places like Liberia. Um, he's a Catholic um, living in the Archdiocese of Maryland. Um, and I think most important for thinking about Dred Scott, he's someone who has thought for many, many years about the question of free black citizenship, um, even before we get to 1857. It is a question that has been on Tawney's mind since the 1820s and the 1830s when, um, as Attorney General, um, he had already begun to work out his theory about black citizenship. And we know his conclusion is that black people cannot be citizens of the United States. Well, let's, as background, just tell you a little bit more numerically about the country at this point. Uh, the total population of the United States in the 1850s was 31-plus million people. Slaves accounted uh, for an additional 3.9 or 4 million people. 
and there were about a half a million free blacks in the United States. And did they, the free blacks, for example, live in a certain part of the country? Well, free blacks, you know, there were free blacks in the South. There were free blacks in the North. Um, a lot of times after emancipation, um, if a slave were emancipated, the slave would leave the jurisdiction. But oftentimes they had family relationships that kept them in their, their the same place where they were previously enslaved. So uh, it was not uncommon to find free blacks among slave populations in the South and free blacks in the North. In urban centers like St. Louis, like Baltimore, which is Tawny's hometown, we have across the first decades of the 19th century increasingly growing communities of free African Americans. Baltimore, Tawny's hometown, has the largest free black population in the country, nearly 25,000 people at the eve of the Civil War. And that helps us begin to understand his touchstone for thinking about the problems that are in Dred Scott. And to be clear, the decision that they would make would affect the fate of those free blacks as well. Absolutely. These are men and women, boys and girls, who many of whom have been free across generations, have been themselves claiming the status of citizens throughout these early decades of the 19th century, which makes Dred Scott a terrible blow. Yeah, they were not only... They, they were not only claiming to be citizens, they were exercising the rights of citizens. They were voting. Many of them voted for ratification of the Constitution uh, well before. So it, it comes as quite a blow. A little bit later on in our program, we're going to be involving you in this a part of this series that makes it really interesting for us are the questions that are on your mind. There'll be a lot of ways you can do that. You can send us a tweet, if you do, at C-SPAN and use the hashtag Landmark Cases. We'll keep that up on the screen throughout the program. You can also be part of the Facebook conversation on C-SPAN's page. And finally, there'll be phone lines where you can call in divided geographically, and we'll put those numbers on the screen periodically. We'll probably be going to calls in about 15 more minutes from now, just so you can get in queue if you'd like. Well, we said, Christopher Bracey said, the important part of Dred Scott's case, the real heart of it, was the fact that with his master, he traveled into the territories that had been declared free in the United States. We're going to learn a little bit more about that time in his life. Our cameras went on location to Fort Snelling, a historic site. Today, it's located right outside of St. Paul, Minnesota, and this is the place where Dred Scott lived in free territory and married. Let's watch. So during the time frame of Dred and Harriet Scott being here, you can imagine the soldiers um, drilling, mustering, muskets firing. Fort Snelling is the place where Dred and Harriet Scott met. Personally, I like to envision Harriet was standing outside of the settler store over here. Maybe Dred was walking by and saw her. He decided he wanted to introduce himself to her. The thing I like about envisioning that is that we continue to put Dred and Harriet and other enslaved people as people rather than objects. Dred and Harriet had a ceremony that was officiated by uh, Lawrence Tolliver, who was Harriet's master at the time. Lawrence Tolliver was also the Indian agent here. The fact that Dred and Harriet's marriage uh, was uh, officiated by Lawrence Tolliver, that's, that, that's rare. You don't, you don't find that happening. It, it truly makes this place significant in that regard. Dred and Harriet existed as enslaved people here on land where slavery wasn't legally recognized. And that was actually one of, the, one of the pieces of information that they used as a basis for their court case when they went and they uh, sued for their freedom in St. Louis. This is the space that we, that we speak about as being the Dred and Harriet Scott quarters. We've refitted and outfitted the room. 
um, in accordance with what we believe it would look like. Um, this room is actually their, their living quarters, and it's interesting because their living quarters are located directly under Emerson's space. So their master, um, his space is right above them, right up here. And so all of the noise of what it is that's happening upstairs, they'd be, be able to hear that down here as well. We understand Dredd to be what we may see as a, uh, as, as a personal valet or, or a manservant. So he was the one who would tend to uh, Emerson's needs. Maybe it was to shave him or if it was, you know, taking care of a horse or, you know, running errands or, or representing him in some sort of way. But those are the types of duties and, and work that we, we find that Dredd was possibly doing. Harriet, anything from cooking to sewing to laundry, the, the, the whole gamut of all of that is what you find, you know, Harriet doing as well. So Chris Bracey, the, uh this was about 1836 or so that Dredd and, and, and ultimately Harriet Scott uh, were living in this area. Uh, what is significant to know about that part of the world in that time period? Well, so when you're talking about 1830, uh, you're talking about a period where the abolitionist movement is starting to grow and become more radicalized. Um, you're talking about a period in which slavery still exists and people sort of have a presumption of slavery and that hasn't changed. So when Dredd and Harriet meet each other, uh, they're both slaves to their masters. Um, if they fall in love, they get married. There's a sort of an ambiguity there, uh, right? Because they both seem to recognize fully that they're enslaved at that moment, and yet they're carrying on in some ways as if they are free. Um, and so, so it's, a, it's sort of a, a time of almost transition, not quite transition, because as, as, as Martha said earlier, the Fugitive Slave Act uh, of 1850 really is the point at which you, source, you see sectional, uh, sectional tension begin to rise. 1830 is sort of the beginning of that crescendo. Would it have been unusual for a white public official of the time to uh, agree to perform a marriage ceremony between Adred and Harriet Scott? I don't think so. Um, marriage cuts two ways in this context. On the one hand, it is the affirmation of two individuals, Dredd and Harriet, the beginning of a life together, the making of a family, children. We know their story and their family continues for many decades. Um, but it cuts two ways because marriage is also viewed by many slaveholders as a mechanism of social control. Um, perhaps a slave is less inclined um, for example, to run away um, if he or she is connected to a family unit, feels tied to other people. So um, it's not a marriage that has legal weight, um, which is to say um, these two cannot now claim ownership or control of their children. Um, they cannot inherit from one another or enjoy the other privileges of marriage. Um, and at the same time, um, we know that they develop a bond that is deep and lasts for decades. So, Dred Scott, you picked up the story, or we left the story with you, with, with Emerson. Emerson was in the military, mm -hmm. and he traveled a lot, which was one of the reasons Dred Scott was so many different places. Yeah, he's an army surgeon. Yeah, he also, Dred Scott, had many masters along the way. Would that have been common for a slave in his period? That seems a little less common for him, given the kind of slave that he was. He was a body man. He was a, sort of a, a servant, and a personal servant. And those kinds of relationships tend to be more enduring. Um, I think it would be unusual to see that kind of person hired out in the way that he was subsequently hired out. Uh, the relationship was strong, obviously, between him and Dr. Emerson. Um, after he and Harriet uh, have their first child, the child is actually named after Dr. Emerson's wife. Eliza, the first child is named after Eliza. Clearly, um, 
Dred Scott uh, is living a very different kind of life as a slave with Dr. Emerson. Somewhere along the way, Dred Scott uh, offered to buy his freedom from Dr. Emerson and, uh, and for his wife. Where would a slave have gotten the means to do that? Mm, that's a great question. Um, by 1846, um, this household is settled back in St. Louis. Um, legal knowledge among and between enslaved peoples is circulating. Many, many enslaved people are um, bringing freedom suits, purchasing their own freedom. Um, the Scots, I think, learn a lot in St. Louis not about their own circumstances and about how to challenge it. Um, and at the same time, um, there is no formal mechanism for self-purchase in a jurisdiction like Missouri. Um, and so to buy one's freedom requires the consent um, the, an accord with one's owner. And as we know, Irene Emerson declines and leaves the Scots no alternative, it seems, but to file a lawsuit. Where would they have gotten the knowledge and understanding about filing a lawsuit, what the process would be, and the money to do such a thing? Yeah, it's an interesting question because, you know, the reality is, is that freedom suits in Missouri were not that uncommon. Um, there were 301 recorded freedom suits in Missouri in the 19th century. Uh, it was a fairly common practice. Um, the sort of anti-slavery bar, the lawyers that were litigating these kinds of cases, um, they were non-ideological cases in many instances. They were just doing sort of workmanlike litigation. You could sort of think of it as almost like criminal defense work or public interest work today, the kind of work that um, lawyers do that not everybody does, but it's just part of the litigation uh, experience. Um, so, you know, and, and, and as Martha was saying, People are relatively sophisticated in Missouri on the slavery question. Not everybody is in agreement and in support of slavery. And so they're having real conversations about what sorts of opportunities people have to be free. Uh, certainly Harriet uh, received some support from her reverend at the Second uh, African Baptist Church, who was known to provide advice to um, would-be freedmen uh, about how to file these sorts of lawsuits. So Donna on Twitter asks, did Dred Scott journeyed a lot? Did his journeys educate him? along the way, causing him to eventually get to the Supreme Court. Do you think he had the opportunity to talk about people in different parts of the United States and I mean, its territories? I think yes. And I think that begins at Fort Snelling, certainly, when uh, Dredd and Harriet um, are left um, to, alone. Um, that is to say, not in the company of the Emersons. Um, they are uh, hired out to another household at Fort Snelling, um, and while they labor and their wages go to the Emersons, um, they enjoy a kind of autonomy that I think sure. gives them the opportunity to speak to people. One of the amazing things for me about that episode is, um, on the one hand, Fort Snelling is in Minnesota, in what is today's Minnesota, near St. Paul. It is terribly remote um, for people like Harriet, who's from Philadelphia, or even Dredd, um, who is from St. Louis. But on the other hand, it's an extraordinary crossroads um, where um, traders, um, merchants, um, native people are passing through trading stories, trading information. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if that's where their legal education, if you will, begins in that rich milieu of Fort Snelling. So Dred Scott takes his first case to what court? Uh, he takes it to Missouri State Court. Uh, he originally files in state court, um, and it's a fairly typical cause of action. Um, there are really two elements to it. Um, he claims, number one, that uh, he's, he is free, um, 
And second, that he's being falsely imprisoned. And so there's an assault component where you claim that you're being threatened. All right. Uh, and the, the second component is imprisonment, uh, where you're basically being held against your will. And that was the typical format for these sorts of cases. It's the kind of case that, you know, it was almost, you know, boilerplate. Um, and then you would go to court and, and you would plea it out um, under the old writ system, uh, which is a little bit different than the way we litigate today. But um, the first case ends on a technicality, which I thought was really interesting. But obviously it didn't doom his case because he was able to refile. So next we're going to take you by video to the St. Louis County Courthouse where Jed and Harriet first sought legal redress. Well, I'd like to welcome you to St. Louis's old courthouse. It's the place where Dredd and Harriet Scott came to try to find a path to freedom through the legal system of the time period. We're currently in one of the grander courtrooms that survive in St. Louis's old courthouse. We know in both of the Dred Scott trials that were heard in this building, the same judge presided. He was the uh, judge of the circuit court in St. Louis at the time. He was known in St. Louis as being somewhat favorable to these cases of enslaved persons who were suing in the courts to try to gain their freedom. It was a jury of 12 men and all of these men would have been white. Some of them may have been and probably were slave owners. So we have to think that when the Scots came here once more in 1850 for a second trial, and when the jury, having listened to the evidence, decided that they should be set free, that the evidence must have been very persuasive. So it was one of actually uh, just a little over 300 cases that were heard in the St. Louis courts about uh, this same matter of enslaved persons trying to become free by petitioning the legal system. And when the slaves came into the court, and we know that they were allowed to come into the court by law, sometimes people ask us that question, but this side of the room traditionally is where the prosecution would sit, and this is where the slaves would have been. We are looking at the original petitions that Dredd and Harriet Scott made to the court in 1846. Dred and Harriet had separate petitions initially and they later were put together into just one case that bore his name. And uh, an interesting thing from the uh, law, the way the law was written at the time, that it specified some sort of abuse might have taken place and so it was almost a formulaic thing where they would say that they had been beaten and bruised and abused by their enslaver. And then at the very bottom are their signatures or marks. Uh, neither Dredd nor Harriet apparently could read or write, and so the person who drafted the petition would write their name and put his mark, and then Dredd would put his cross or X in that space. And the same with Harriet. You can see uh, they did the same over here in her mark. You're listening to C-SPAN's Landmark Cases. We will be back in a moment. One of the places that uh, if you're out on the road and in St. Louis, you can go visit to learn more about the history of the country at this time and the Dred Scott case. Well, I want to show you a timeline of uh, Scott's legal challenge in the state of Missouri. 
First, uh, 1846 was when it was filed at the St. Louis, Louis County Court, which is what we just saw, retried in 1850 in the same courtroom. Uh, then it went on to Missouri Supreme Court, decided in 1852, and then finally 1854, it moved to the first of the federal courts in St. Louis. So for both of you, of that set of questions decided by the lower courts, the state courts, what were the important aspects of the case for people to understand? Well, I mean, I guess the first part that I would emphasize is actually the lower court cases. And I'll talk about that and then let Martha chime in on on the remaining pieces. Um, So the first trial where there's a technicality, it's interesting to understand what the technicality was that caused Dred Scott to lose the first trial. There are actually three different lawsuits that were filed. There's one for for Dred, one for Harriet, and then another for the two kids. Um, And the technicality was this. The claim that Dred Scott had made was that he was being falsely imprisoned and being hired out to a man by the name of Mr. Russell. Um, Mr. Russell comes and testifies, yes, I hired out uh, Dred from Mrs. Emerson uh, for a set amount of money. On cross-examination, it was revealed uh, that it was not Mr. Russell who made the arrangements to hire out Dred Scott, but his wife, Mrs. Russell. And Mrs. Russell hadn't testified at trial. So the, Mr. Russell's testimony was struck as hearsay. There was no evidence showing that Dredd had actually been hired out and therefore been treated as a slave, so the case was dismissed. But the judge was sympathetic, uh, as you saw in the video, um, and so there was a retrial. At retrial, Mr. Emerson testified that he paid the money. I'm, I'm sorry, Mr., uh, Mr. Russell testified that he paid the money. Mrs. Russell testified that she made the arrangements. Um, and now with the evidence, evidence closed, uh, Dred Scott was able to prevail at the state court level. So then why did it go on to the Missouri Supreme Court? Well, I think it that takes us back to, I think, a, a fundamental question, which is why 1846? What's happening that the Scots wait as long as they do to bring this freedom suit? Um, and I think there is this confluence of things. But for me, the most powerful thing are those girls. Um, part of what we know is that they have these two young daughters um, something changes, and throughout this litigation, the Scots um, keep the girls in hiding. Mm-hmm. Um, my sense always is that um, they are prepared, if necessary, to defy a court order and to secret those girls out of St. Louis rather than to see them remain enslaved, rather than to see them at risk for being sold away from their parents. They're terribly vulnerable as they grow up as young African-American enslaved girls. Um, they're vulnerable not only to being separated from their parents, but to sexual assault. So there's something going on here in this scene. What happens is that they win at the second trial. The jury of white men in St. Louis, Missouri, find them, declare them free people. Um, and it's extraordinary, but not unexpected. Not because unexpected at all. this sort of case um, has been heard, as Chris said, hundreds of times before, and generally the rule of law in Missouri is that once an enslaved person has lived on free soil, that he or she becomes a free person even when they return to the slave state of Missouri. Once free, always free. Yes. So then why did it not end there? Right. So um, it's a great lesson in why people wait to bring freedom suits. Why? Because they're not a sure thing. They never are. But in this case, we have... changing politics in the state of Missouri, um, a high court um, that is um, increasingly interested in closing the door 
to these sorts of freedom suits. And what we get finally at the high court in Missouri is a split decision. Um, on the one hand, the majority of two that says, um, no, um, we are not obligated as the state of Missouri to honor the laws of the what was the Wisconsin Territory or the state of Illinois, um, where the Scots had been on free soil. We're not obligated to extend that kind of courtesy, and our laws dictate that they should be, in essence, re-enslaved. Um, there is a lone dissenter, Justice Gamble, mm -hmm. um, who says, um, not so fast. Um, we have decades of a precedent here, um, and I, at least for the um, dissenting view, um, argue that we should follow precedent and they should be free. But yeah. he doesn't carry the day. Gamble's point was, I think, as clear as a bell. He said, circumstances may have changed, but our principles shouldn't. For the next part of Dred Scott's story, we go on to the federal courts, ultimately the Supreme Court. But before we do that, it's time to start taking your calls. We're going to begin with a call from Joe watching us in Pittsburgh. Joe, you're on the air. What's your question? Yes, I'm interested in the... Uh two attorneys that defended Dred Scott, Montgomery, Montgomery Blair, which we know of the famous Blair House in D.C., and Roswell Field, who was from St. Louis. Okay, thanks. I'm going to ask our guests to spend just a little time, because when we get to that part of the story, we'll spend more. But uh, the Montgomery Blair being the more famous mm -hmm. of the two, what mm -hmm. can you tell us about him? I want to point out quickly... Montgomery Blair is a Marylander, like Roger Tawney, a former slaveholder who has a very different view, ultimately, of how Dred Scott should turn out. Um, when we get to the Supreme Court, it's a contest, Marylander against Marylander. Next is uh, Caliente, California, and Jim is watching us there. Hi, you're on the air, Jim. Thank you. Thank you for this series. Um, several questions. First of all, thanks specifically to the two guests there. You're doing very, very interesting. I'm a former retired attorney, and uh, last time I think I looked at Dred Scott was in law school about 50 years ago. Um, but my question is, is this really the worst case the Supreme Court has decided? I, I think I would have uh, said Plessy versus Ferguson, just because it continued, uh, the, the effect of it continued longer. Dred Scott died with the Civil War, fortunately. And, and also, and I don't know if any of you can answer this. You're not. I don't believe you're doing Plessy in the series. You are doing Brown versus Board of Education. And if you know why you're not doing Plessy versus Ferguson, I'd be curious. Thank well, you. a very simple answer to that. We had 12 weeks and, and thousands of cases. So we, with the Constitution Center as uh, our partners in this, really spent lots of time arguing over which cases would be our our uh, landmark cases, knowing that we couldn't do all, but. Already we're thinking about next year and maybe more cases to add to the list. Uh, but was Plessy versus Ferguson perhaps more impactful in the long run? Well, I mean, it, it sort of depends on your perspective and what, you, what you're talking about. In terms of impugning the reputation of the court, and I think the caller is absolutely right, by the way, Plessy versus Ferguson uh, was an atrocious decision as well. Uh, but in terms of impacting the reputation of the court, I think Dred Scott did a great deal more damage. Uh, to the reputation of the court, uh, in part because I think the expectation uh, among most people is that the court was not going to be overtly political. Not that these cases aren't political at times, but that it wouldn't actually engage in politics. And what 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 we see uh, in Dred Scott is really uh, a court reaching out and deciding a political question and deciding it wrong. Um, 
Plessy versus Ferguson has its faults, and you know maybe when the next season comes around, we'll have an opportunity to talk about that because there's a lot to say about that decision as well. Uh, but I, I would stand pat on my my claim that really Dred Scott is the most atrocious Supreme Court decision. Martha, do you know the answer to this, at least in general? Mary Pat on Twitter says there were 301 freedom case suits filed in Missouri. How many, or at least uh, what percentage of them, were successful? Oh, that's a very good question, and I don't know the answer. I should. Um, But I will say that there are um, some dozens of cases brought on the very same terms that the Scots bring their case um, that are, in fact, successful. Um, There's almost every reason to think that they should succeed. Yeah, the one case in particular, which was actually decided a couple years before uh, Dred Scott's case came about, Rachel versus Walker, Mm. was one where there was a a female slave that was taken uh, by an army officer into free territory, and the court held that um, when that army officer took took the the slave to the free territory, that he forfeited uh, that slave. Um, So there was clear precedent on the books in Missouri. It wasn't a lone case. There were many cases just like it. I think Martha's exactly right. Welcome to Glenn watching us in Freeland, Michigan. You're up, Glenn. Thank you all very much. Um, my question is, there were a lot of uh, white European groups, Italians, Jews, Irish Catholics, and so on, uh, immigrating here at the time. And I was wondering, what exactly defined citizenship back then? I mean, um, did the Dred Scott case make it basically a skin color in it? ethnic group thing, or was there some kind of hard and fast rule, or what exactly was a citizen back then? Thank you. Important question. We get right to the $64,000 question. Um, The U.S. Constitution is nearly silent on the question of who is a citizen. There's a hint um, in qualifications for office like the president that there must be something like a natural-born citizen in the United States. There certainly is an acknowledgement in the Constitution that one can become a naturalized citizen, as is the case for many of the immigrants that you referred to. And at the same time, there is an extraordinary um, hole, if you will, in our understandings of citizenship in the 19th century. And that turns precisely on the case of former slaves. Um, They are no longer slaves. They're free people. Um, But there is a spirited debate about whether or not they stand in shoes equivalent to those of white Americans during this period. And Dred Scott appears, and I say appears, um, to close the door on that question. Well, in that light, William Hamilton on Facebook writes, The problem with Dred Scott was it opened the way to bring and maintain slaves in free states. It's an important principle, he writes. You shouldn't lose your rights by crossing a state border. But in the case of slavery, it creates serious problems. The Fugitive Slave Act already had caused huge issues. No, he's exactly right. I mean, part of what Dred Scott did, uh, the lower court decision, was to create a sort of bubble, a space uh, in free territory where slavery could exist. And that was the basic tension, whether that that was permissible. The Missouri Compromise suggested that that should not be possible. And yet Missouri law was interpreted by the Missouri Supreme Court to create for that, that, that specific possibility. So we're going to move on to the important part, the reason for this program, and that is the federal court, specifically the Supreme Court. Once again, I want to show you the years uh, of his uh, redress uh, within uh, a petition to the Supreme Court and how long it took him to have uh, his case finally argued and decided. So we left it in 1854, decided by the St. Louis Federal Court. 
And then in 1856, it was argued for the first time before the Supreme Court, argued once again, a second argument in the Supreme Court in the same year. 1857, the decision was handed down. Uh, and uh, also 1857, Dred and Harriet Scott were freed, and we'll tell that story later on. And he only lived another year and a half after that, died in 1858. So ultimately, from the first petition in the uh, St. Louis County Court until the Supreme Court heard his case, it was 11 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that typical today, if you go to a Supreme Court? Is that a long time? Well, I mean, you know, there are cases that, that do go on for a decade today, but uh, a freedom suit sh- certainly shouldn't have taken that long. Um, I mean, it's remarkable in its length, really. Um, and the fact that it was contested so thoroughly, I mean, you, got, you have to realize by the time that this case gets decided, Dred Scott is an old man. Uh, he is, as far as his value as a slave, uh, he is of diminished value. He's sick. Uh, and yet they're continuing to fight uh, over Dred Scott and Harry Scott. Yet his daughters were still. And the daughters. I think that's why I think there's a key, one of the keys to this story are about Eliza and Lizzie, the Scott's daughters. Um, Not only do they have a a value as property um, to their parents, um, they are precious. And I think when we try and understand the longevity, not only how long the suit takes, but the tenaciousness right, mm-hmm. that it takes to pursue it um, out of the state courts and into federal court, um, we appreciate how keenly the Scots felt the stakes were. Now we now move to the part of the story where Roger Torney, who is the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, appointed by who, how do we go? Andrew Jackson. Andrew See, Jackson. I knew the answer yeah. before. There you go. Good, good. Uh, and, and we're going to Good learn more about uh, <laughs> know more about his uh, background and what he brought to this case and what the makeup of his court was like. But we're going to start once again with the video. We went to Annapolis to learn more about Roger Tawney's early career. It is through these doors that Roger Burke Tawney would have walked when he was serving in the Maryland legislature in 1799. He served one term as a Federalist. He came back in 1816 and served a term in the Maryland Senate until 1821. And it was inside this room, now called the Old Senate Chamber, where the Maryland Senate met. In the mid-19th century, 1816, when Tawney was serving here, the members of Congress would sit in an arc of desks here facing the President of Congress, who would be seated at a desk on the President's dais. The business of the Senate at that time, Tawney was representing Frederick County, would have been um, looking out for land interests in the county. Um, This was the period really within 10 years after the War of 1812. So there was still a lot of um, building of American government at that time. So really foundational work uh, was underway here in in the Senate and across the hall in the House of Delegates. While he was serving here in the Maryland Senate, he was still operating his law practice in Frederick and actually also serving on the board of directors of the Bank of Frederick, which was incorporated during that time. After leaving the Maryland Senate, he came back to service in the state in 1827 as Attorney General, and it was from that post that he left in 1831 to begin serving in the federal government. So, Martha Jones, you started us on the story of Roger Tawney. What else should we know about this man as we move into learning about how he uh, ran his court and how he ultimately wrote the decision in this case? One of the um, interesting um, 
facts about being a Supreme Court justice in this period is that um, you're not excused from serving on trial courts as well. So Tawny rides the circuit, as we say, and goes back to his home state of Maryland, back to Baltimore regularly to sit on trials in that federal district court. Um, and so he is, on the one hand, still enmeshed in this world of Baltimore, in this world of a growing free black community. He is a patron, in some sense, to free African Americans in that city. Um, and he's then in Washington thinking on a very different scale um, about the status of slavery and the standing of African Americans going forward. So I think to understand Tawny, you have to understand um, the world. He's in some ways not quite a recluse, but he's somewhat reserved. He takes his post, his um, his seat on the bench very seriously, doesn't want to appear to be um, tainted by popular opinion or by politics, um, but he continues to be an active member of the bar in Baltimore to preside over proceedings there in his local Catholic church. He's a figurehead, much sought after, and so he's enmeshed in this social world, not not simply in some ivory tower um, in Washington. Here's an interesting biographical fact about, fact about Roger Tawney. In 1818, he freed his own slaves. Yes, he did. He did free his own slaves, the ones he inherited um, uh, before he before he became a judge. Um, but there's something else about Roger Tawney too. I mean, he was I, while he he was a little bit of a recluse. He wasn't necessarily afraid to stake out an ideological position. Um, one case comes to mind, which is Prigg versus Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a case decided in 1842. It involved the, basically the fugitive slave clause. There was a slave that had escaped uh, to Pennsylvania, um, and Pennsylvania refused to turn the slave back over to the catchers who had gone to, to pursue uh, the slave. Um, the Supreme Court had to decide the question as to how to interpret the Fugitive Slave Clause of the Constitution and what obligations it would impose on the state of Pennsylvania, the Quaker state, in terms mm -hmm. of supporting slavery and the return of this slave to his master. Now, Tani didn't write the opinion, the majority opinion in the court. That was done by the Chief Justice. Um, and there the court said, in effect, yep, uh, we have to return this slave. It's part of our constitutional obligation. We're going to be forced by the states to assist uh, in returning the slave. Tani went further, though, in a concurrence, arguing that the assistance should be much more substantial, that states should have an obligation to have their local authorities deputized by federal marshals to assist with the delivering up of slaves. In other words, he was really pushing the sort of pro-slavery nationalist position uh, and this is years before Dred Scott comes around, but we could sort of see that coming after that opinion. I'm going to take uh, two calls, and then I'd like to show you the makeup of Tawny's court uh, and uh, what the uh, how the nine judges were allocated by appointments and sectionalism, since this is all about sectionalism at this period of time. So you know what kind of court was receiving the, uh, the, the case of uh, Dred Scott. Let's listen to Harry, who's watching us in Oakland, Maryland. Hi, Harry, you're on the air. How are, you, how are you doing this evening? We're great, thanks. Hey, quite question I had. Uh, there were movements at that time in even some of the slave states towards abolition. I think Virginia, somewhere in like the mid-1850s, had an election on that. I'm not sure it was a legislature exactly what it was, but it, it was closer than you would think. But the, the question I have, uh, how much weight did this really have ultimately to the Civil War? Could the war have been avoided possibly had they ruled differently 
you know, on this particular uh, matter? It's a great question, um, and it's one of the things, um, one of the, um, I think, um, overstatements about Dred Scott is the claim that it um, is the case that gives us the Civil War. Um, as um, Chris Bracey said, sectional tension is already um, very high by the time we get to 1857. Probably we would ascribe the, the rising of that tension in the mid-1850s to um, the situation in Kansas and the debate over um, whether or not Kansas will be admitted as a slave state um, in the mid-1850s is probably much closer to helping us understand how we get to um, the breaking of sectional ties um, and the Civil War than Dred Scott. Dred Scott is great propaganda um, for political leaders who want to um, demonstrate or um, wave um, the threat of um, the slaveocracy um, in front of the nation. Um, but I'm not sure, in fact, that the court decision, which was not, in fact, enforced um, to any significant degree, I'm not sure that the decision itself had the force of giving us the Civil War. So here are the names of the nine justices on the Supreme Court, and they are broken down by sections of the country. Roger Taney, of course, is the chief. James Wayne, and these are also in order of appointment, James Wayne of Georgia, John Catron of Tennessee, Peter V. Daniel of Virginia, Joseph A. Campbell of Alabama. So five of the nine. The Northerners, uh, John McLean of Ohio, Samuel Nelson of New York, Robert Greyer of Pennsylvania, and Benjamin Curtis of Massachusetts. So going into this, Christopher Bracey, it looked like it, the, it, it would be logically most of a 5-4 decision. So the odds were stacked against Dred Scott going into it. Oh, absolutely. And in some ways, the portrait is worse than that, because you have seven out of the nine uh, who are Democrats, only two Whigs. Um, and then the five Southerners that you see there are also the five that descend from slave-owning families. Uh, so really, you're looking at you know, serious odds against Dred Scott, seven to nine. You know, right. so, and that, that's ultimately the vote on the case. It was the two Northerners who were Whigs mm -hmm. who voted in, in, with Dred Scott, ultimately. That's right. Uh, that's John McLean of Ohio and Benjamin Curtis of Massachusetts. We have some video of the old Supreme Court chamber in the U.S. Capitol, uh, which is where this case was argued. We're going to show you that. And as we do, set the stage for the court a case being heard. What was it like the first time around that it was heard? Well, I think that um, in some sense, um, it's a case that's much anticipated by the time it reaches the court. Um, Tawny um, himself is eager, I think, to take on these questions. Um, and Dred Scott provides him, um, it turns out, with his only opportunity in this critical period, um, not only to impact the jurisprudence, um, but in effect to have a role in the political questions that are um, set to wrench the nation. So the court, I think, is poised. Would you agree, Chris? I agree. And you have Roswell Field, who was Dred Scott's lawyer in St. Louis, who sort of brings this federal case to being. Now you have the superstar Montgomery Blair stepping in to argue before the Supreme Court, representing the Sanfords, right? Uh, right? You have Geyer from St. Louis. And then you have Reverdy Johnson. Also of Maryland. Also of Maryland and a good friend uh, and sort of running running mate with uh, with uh, Tani. So you have the makings of an interesting case uh, that's going to be argued before the court. So how did uh, Dred Scott find these superstar attorneys to represent him? 
Well, you know, it's interesting. It's it, You have the Blow family that's providing support to Dred Scott here. His very original owners. The original owners, the descendants, the children of Peter and uh, Elizabeth Taylor of Blow are now abolitionists. Charlotte Blow has married an editor of an abolitionist newspaper. One of the sons uh, becomes a U.S. congressman. The other daughter marries a U.S. senator. All right, so they get together and provide the financial security to support the litigation. Um, another connection, which I haven't fully validated, but Montgomery Blair has a brother uh, in Missouri, Frank Blair. Mm -hmm. Frank Blair uh, is a conservative unionist. Um, it's possible that there's some connection there as well, which would explain why Montgomery Blair gets involved with this particular case. And then, of course, you know, Benjamin Curtis's brother uh, joins the litigation team on behalf of Dred Scott for the second uh, round of oral arguments to argue the validity of the Missouri Compromise. And who was Benjamin Curtis? Uh, Benjamin Curtis is a justice on the court. Oh, I'm justice sorry. Justice Curtis, I'm sorry. George, George Curtis, uh, the Justice Curtis's brother. So the, the, a brother of a sitting justice sitting jurist, yep, sitting argued jurist. before the court. Could you do that today or there would be a conflict? I, I think there would be a conflict today. That wouldn't occur. So uh, was he paid for his services or did they do this pro bono? Blair is not paid um, and um, neither, um, uh, neither is um, Curtis. Curtis. Um, but here, by the time we are approaching the U.S. Supreme Court, um, these are men who are taking this case um, because their reputations call for it. Um, and it would be, I think it would be a mistake to characterize them as hired guns, but, or they're very fancy hired guns, um, which is to say, though, um, that there's a great deal of prestige associated with arguing these cases. Blair, I think, never even meets um, the Scott family. Um, he simply takes the case um, in Washington um, and argues it there. Um, I guess I should ask the question specifically, was Dred Scott in the courtroom as his case was argued? Now, the Scots are in St. Louis. They're in St. Um, Louis. They are in the um, formal custody of the court. The sheriff. The sheriff. Um, and they are hired out and laboring, um, and their daughters are in hiding. And uh, the, uh, this case is important. Uh, well, actually, I want to ask about one question from Twitter, which mm -hmm. just plays into this well. Uh, one of our uh, callers, when we were talking about Roger Tawney, he said, would you talk about Tawney's role as a Catholic on the court at a time when Catholics were unheard of in national politics? Uh, it, it's a great question because um, Tawney does not come um, certainly out of any of the um, religious communities um, that we would associate with a critique of slavery. Um, and so he doesn't come out of that tradition, um, even as he's a colonizationist. He doesn't have a thoroughgoing critique of slavery the way um, we, that we associate with Quakers and some Methodists and Baptist sects in this period. Um, but remember that Baltimore is the um, archdiocese of the Catholic Church. And so um, if one were to be a Catholic in the mid-19th century, Baltimore is where you would want to do it. Um, so he exerts an extraordinary um, kind of cultural power um, through his association with the Catholic Church in a city like Baltimore, um, even as he's perceived as a minority in other parts of the country. By the time the case got to the Supreme Court, its docket was uh, was uh, Dred, Dred Scott v. Sanford, mm -hmm. S-A-N-D-F-O-R-D. Uh, who was Sanford, and how did his name get attached to this case? Yeah, so John Sanford is uh, Mrs. Emerson's brother. Um, at this point, uh, Dr. Emerson is... Deceased, Mrs. Emerson um, is tiring of the litigation. She transfers title. I think the, the record is fairly clear that she transfers title, although 
I think it's a little less than clear. Yeah, 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 it's somewhat somewhat clear that she transfers title to her brother. John Sanford is in New York. He's a businessman, but he has ties to St. Louis. Um, One of those ties, incidentally, was by marriage. His earlier wife, who was now deceased, uh, Emile Choteau, was the daughter of Pierre Choteau, the largest slave owner uh, in the city of St. Louis. Um, And that's one of the reasons that might explain why the litigation persisted uh, under Sanford's name for so long, in part because he was protecting his family's business interests as well as his own uh, by ensuring uh, the longevity of slavery. You'll you'll see when we have the picture of Sanford on screen, we spell it S-A-N-F-O-R-D. That was, in fact, the correct spelling of his name. It was recorded incorrectly and throughout history in the Supreme Court records, it is uh, Scott v. Sanford misspelled That's correct. Uh, in the case. So that's just a little historical side uh, note that uh, is interesting. So who argued for Sanford? Uh, so before the U.S. Supreme Court, um, we have um, Reverdy Johnson, mm-hmm. um, who is going to um, brings an extraordinary reputation um, with him. He is, as um, Professor Bracey said, um, a friend um, and intellectual ally to Roger Tawney. Um, and um, he and um, it's Greyer, Greyer. Greyer yep. are going to um, argue uh, many of the points that we see then um, made by Tawney in his final opinion. Um, but I would just point out that um, they know full well Tawney's views are not a secret by this time. And so in many ways, um, I think they feed the Chief Justice um, the kinds of arguments that they know he is receptive to. Um, it's not the first time um, that he has made the, uh, offered up the view that um, no black person can be a citizen. Next question comes from Larry in Englewood, Colorado. Hi, Larry, you're on. Well, hello. Uh, nice series. I wondered if uh, the Scots lived as freed persons during this litigation period heard a little something about they were let out and wondered who the funds went to and just what their status was during this um, uh, prolonged uh, period of time. The, the Scots are slaves. Um, they are enslaved people throughout this period. And it's not unusual in a city like St. Louis, even absent the ongoing freedom suit, it's not unusual for enslaved people to be um, what was called hired out Um, seasonally or for um, year-long contracts. Um, Owners um, took advantage of enslaved people's labor in many ways, sometimes using them in their own households. But as you've heard, um, the Emersons have no direct um, need for the labor of the Scots, um, but they um, look forward to or anticipate um, the income that's generated by their labor. One of the remarkable twists in this story is that the Scots will labor and earn some say as much as a thousand dollars during the course of the litigation. That um, funds is held and finally turned over um, to the um, the family um, when um, the Scots um, receive their freedom. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, Irene uh, marries Calvin uh, Chafee, uh, and so now she's. Emerson, Ms. Emerson, now Ms. Chafee, uh, she finally relents at the end of the litigation, having won uh, and w- is willing to transfer title to the Blow family, but only on the condition that she be given those proceeds, which I had, I had read was in the, in the range of about $750. Um, but she, she did request the money. So um, that says something about... I think they were in Piastra. And so we don't, I don't know what the, it was a thousand Piastra. Yeah, right. That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> 
Tipreet in Novi, Michigan. You're on the air. Uh, hello. Uh, I just want to say that um, during his stay at Fort Snelling, Scott married Harriet Robinson in a civil ceremony by her own owner, who was uh, just of the, of the peace. The ceremony would have been unnecessary if Dred Scott were a slave, as slave marriages had no recognition of the law. Also in 1837, the Army ordered Emerson to um, Jefferson Brock's military post, which was south of St. Louis, Missouri. And when Emerson left, he left Scott and his wife at Fort Snelling, where he leased their services out for profit. And by doing that in a free state, uh, he was effectively bringing the institution of slavery into a free state, which was a direct vi violation of the Missouri Compromise, the Northwood Ordinance, and the Wisconsin Enabling Act. So can you tell me how come you know so much of the detail of this case, the legal detail? Oh, uh, I was, I'm taking AP U.S. History, and I already read my textbook, that's why. <laughs> you read ahead of the text, that's great. So what year yeah. are you in school? Oh, I'm in 10th grade. 10th grade. Thank you so much for being part of our program. We appreciate your questions and the detail of it. Yeah, that. it was wonderful. Great, and, great question and comment. And any more to add for her? Well, I'll just simply say those were the big questions. It was whether... Um, creating that, that bubble of slavery in free territory violated federal law. Um, and that was the question that was wrestled with by the court. And ultimately, it's in Dred Scott where the, Justice Taney says, in effect, uh, no, because the federal law that created that free, uh, that free territory uh, was unconstitutional. So there were essentially four questions, four aspects of this case that the Supreme Court reviewed. The first was, was the plea in abatement subject to appellate review. Put that into terms that the public can understand. Yeah, I mean, the question is whether or not this is an appealable issue. So can the Supreme Court actually hear it? Can it hear it, right. Question number two, could, uh, and this is in quotes, Negro of the African race be a citizen of the United States? This was central to the entire review by the Supreme Court. Absolutely. And here, um, the specific question is whether for the purposes of diversity jurisdiction, um, in a federal court, right, diversity being um, a circumstance under which a citizen of one state sues a citizen of another state. Um, when that happens, you have access to federal courts, but you have to be a citizen of a state. Um, and the question is whether or, not, whether or not the Scots are citizens of the state of Missouri. Question number three of the four considered by the court, did Congress have the power to enact the Missouri Compromise and prohibit slavery in the territories. This gets down to the question of judicial review. Oh, well, that's the heart of the question. Um, Congress has authority to regulate in the territories. That much is clear under the Constitution. The question is, does the sort of regulation that Congress is empowered to do include regulation of property, property such as slaves? And that's where the issue comes up, uh, because you also have a right to own property. And it's unclear whether Congress can abrogate that right specifically with respect to slavery and not, uh, not regulate other property as well. So not to get too bogged down in this, but at one point, the court was really not prepared to rule on the Missouri Compromise aspect. They were going to issue a narrower decision. Why did they decide to take this very big one, which would have the national consequences? Well, part of it had to do with the fact that you had two justices announcing that they were going to dissent. Um, and in their dissent, they were not only going to declare that uh, Dred Scott should be freed, uh, but they were also going to say that in their view, the Missouri Compromise was constitutional, even though there were some doubts as to whether or not uh, it was, in fact, constitutional. And they argued, they announced this before the case was heard? Prior to, with, prior to when, before the case was uh, decided. So this was, you can imagine this taking place in a conference after the case has been argued. 
once the justices begin to talk about how they're going to come out in the case, you have two justices that say, in effect, we're going to come out strong. We're going to say that Dred Scott should be free and that the Missouri Compromise is valid. The reason why the case was reheard. Well, the other thing that's going on behind the scenes is that President Buchanan mm -hmm. um, is um, reaching out um, and... Um, President-elect Buchanan at this point? It, yeah. It was reaching out. He's preparing for his own um, inaugural, and he um, wants to know um, what the outcome in Dred Scott is going to be, and he's leaning on these justices. Now, again, today, this is something that we would say um, is really out of bounds. Um, it probably was even out of bounds in the 19th century, mm -hmm. um, but part of the way we can understand the way that how the court's mind turns um, is this kind of political pressure that's going on behind the scenes. I didn't put the fourth aspect of the case. The fourth, and I told you there were four, was did Missouri allow a law? Excuse me, allow Scott's reversion to slavery after he had lived in Illinois. So those were the four legal questions before the court. Obviously, number two and number three of those, the most significant for the case. Uh, so the 1856 election and uh, the beginning of the rise of the Whig Party and also uh, President Buchanan wanting to be able to make political hay of this as the country starting to come apart, how did that election impact the outcome of this case? Well, one thing I would want to insert is that the first hearing occurs uh, in the case occurs in February of 1856. The election is in the fall, right? So there's a question as to whether or not the Supreme Court ought to decide the case before the election and possibly influence the election. There was a concern that the issue of slavery was that contentious that they didn't want to throw the election. And so they announced that they would have a second round of our oral argument that would occur in December, which would be after the election. And it was at that point that we have President Buchanan beginning to have conversation with Justice Taney and Greyer and others about, you know, what the outcome of the case ought to be. Can you tell me what the decision is going to be? Or did he, in fact, try to influence the decision? I mean, what was Buchanan's role in this? I think initially it was about timing more than anything else. But then later he began to talk more substantively uh, about what the nature of the decision might be or should be. And here's something we would find absolutely outrageous today. I read that that for his swearing in, he wanted to announce the outcome of the case for his inaugural address. Yeah, he's very he's deeply invested in this question about Congress's authority um, and the question about to what degree and under what terms slavery will or will not be able to um, continue and to spread into federal territories. Um, and um, he doesn't quite take that. Um, that thunder, and we can imagine Tawney's um, own sense of um, propriety, right, over the court um, and over what in the 19th century is its own dramatic scene, um, which is the reading of these opinions from the bench of the Supreme Court lasting um, many hours. Um, there's an important theater um, and, a, and an important um, status, right, that comes to the court um, in owning its own process and its own opinions. So I, it's important to note then, based on that, that, that the Chief Justice resisted the pressure from President-elect Buchanan to announce the decision before his inaugural so he could talk about the inaugural address, but they announced it just after. Yeah, and in fact, the inaugural address does say something, uh, right? You do have the, you do have the President-elect during his inauguration saying that he expects that there will be a decision uh, that will resolve this question uh, in a way that's consistent with what he had been running on, uh, which was a more pro-slavery nationalist agenda. Uh, and so he did telegraph the outcome, which signaled to a lot of historians, right, uh, after the fact that he did know. Uh, he knew the outcome of the decision at the time.
And we cannot imagine that happening any point since. Is there ever, do people expect today that there are conversations that might happen between presidents and members of the court that they appointed to find out what might be going on? Or is there a real division between the two branches of government today? People in Washington talk, uh, but I imagine that, you know, this is the kind of thing where, you know, when, when folks are taking their jobs very seriously, uh, these are the kinds of conversations that are very closely held and that I, I wouldn't expect that kind of influence from the White House on a Supreme Court decision, certainly at, 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 with the chief justice of the court. But on the other hand, if we fast forward to the 20th century and the Roosevelt era and the New Deal question, right, here's another moment when um, we don't exactly um, tell the story of the president literally picking up the phone, but he has the capacity to telegraph quite clearly to the court um, what's on his mind and what he's prepared to do um, if the court doesn't begin to... Um, turn its views to support his policy shifts. And after that, we're going to learn also about the steel cases where Harry Truman uh, was perhaps tipped off incorrectly about the outcome of his case. Uh, and so it continues to some degree, maybe not today, but throughout history, there's at least some more instances of the court and uh, the appointees either overtly or covertly communicating about directions of cases. An interesting aspect of this. Well, next up, we're going to hear some excerpts from the decision. Uh, But before that, uh, let's hear from Roberto watching us in Washington, D.C. Hi, Roberto, you're on. Good evening. Yes, uh, I just want to commend the C-SPAN and the National Constitution Center for putting on this wonderful series. I think it's very educational. I recommend everybody watch it. Thank you. So I have two quick questions. Uh, My first question is, is the Dred Scott case an example of originalist interpretation? And my second quick question is, last month, uh, Governor Mike Huckabee, who was a presidential candidate, while defending Kentucky clerk Kim Davis's refusal to issue marriage licenses out of her opposition, religious opposition to same-sex marriage, he said, quote, that the Dred Scott case is still the law of the land, um, even though no one follows it. So the second question is, is that true? Is, is, is the Dred Scott decision still the law of the land? Thank you. Professor Bracey, is it? Uh, no, it's not. Obviously, the Dred Scott case was overruled uh, by the 14th Amendment ratification uh, and the 13th Amendment ratification. Uh, and a whole host of civil rights legislation. Uh, so a lot of that has been laid to rest. Um, the interesting question though is on originalism, and, and I thank the caller for that one. Uh, yes, I think that Dred Scott, the majority opinion does uh, express a certain originalism. It's not a sort of hard textualist originalism. It's what I would call a soft originalism in which you have the justice imagining what the framers might have thought. And if you read Justice Taney's opinion, he talks a lot about the framers, what they were thinking at the time of the decade Declaration of the uh, Declaration of Independence was signed. What they were thinking at the time that the Constitution was decided, he called them men high in literary accomplishment. They knew what they were saying, and at no point did they believe that blacks would be citizens in the United States. And he said these these were not his views, but the views of the framers. And so uh, this is a classic instance of what I would call soft originalism. So between the first and second hearings of this case, uh, the public attention grew enormously. Uh, For the second set of oral arguments, the courtroom was packed with people, members of Congress, members of the media, abolitionists and states' rights people and their supporters all were so interested in the outcome of this case. Uh, And when it was finally handed down, many people were urgently wanting to hear what the outcome would be. But you told us that this was read as a voluminous decision, nine different opinions issued. And people are still trying to dissect what the meaning of it is. Uh, A 7-2 vote. And the, the dissents were read over the course of two days in the court. 
Can you give us a scene setter of what it must have been like in this capital city for this? Well, you know, um, part of what's extraordinary about Dred Scott is that it comes um, at a moment in which um, the uh, technologies of uh, newspaper reporting have really um, improved. And so it's possible in ways it hadn't been in prior decades um, to get the news out of Washington Mm -hmm. um, to Baltimore, to St. Louis, to New York, um, with great efficiency. And so uh, when we look back at the period newspapers, um, we see how local papers like the Baltimore Sun are digesting this, these decisions, um, bullet pointing them for readers, mm-hmm. um, precisely because, as you say, not only is Washington poised, but much of the country is poised, um, eager to know um, the court's reasoning um, in Dred Scott. And the word gets out very quickly. Um, now, there's a lot of partisanship in newspapers, and so there's, um, in a paper like The Sun, um, there's a great deal of boosterism um, for Tawny um, and for his views. Um, but very quickly, Americans have the news of the decision are, and are able to, in a sense, judge for themselves what the court has done. Well, the, the decision runs 255 pages, mm-hmm. so obviously we can only pick a very short excerpt for you to give you a flavor of it. Here is some of what Chief Justice Roger Taney, who wrote the opinion and read it for the court, uh, had to say on uh, the question of citizenship. The legislation and histories of the times and the language used in the Declaration of Independence show that neither the class of persons who had been imported as slaves nor their descendants, whether they had become free or not, were then acknowledged as part of the people nor intended to be included in the general words used in that memorable instrument, talking about our founding documents. And on the Missouri Compromise, here's some of his language. The act of Congress which prohibited a citizen from holding and owning property of this kind in the territory of the United States north of the line therein mentioned is not warranted by the Constitution and is therefore void, striking down an act of Congress. Okay, so help us understand the implications of these two uh, parts of his opinion. Well, the first part on the citizenship uh, side of things, it's really a dramatic statement on his part. It's true, as Martha was saying, that this was not a new idea for Justice Taney. Um, But to say that the Declaration of Independence didn't contemplate uh, blacks as citizens, to say that under the Constitution they were never thought to be part of the relevant political community, and he uses the word community in the opinion elsewhere uh, in a very powerful way, Uh, that's a dramatic claim to make because, as you know, Justice Curtis writes in his dissenting opinion, and I think quite persuasively, that in five out of 13 of states, you have blacks exercising the rights of citizens, and many of whom had even voted on the ratification of the Constitution. So what you see um, Justice Taney doing, in the words of Frederick Douglass, is making a brazen misstatement of history. Um, and that, that's what I think was particularly galling um, and shocking to jurists, the public, um, but even Justice Curtis. And on this point, I would say... Roger Tawney knows full well that in his home state of Maryland, African-Americans voted at the end of the 18th century Mm -hmm. in the era of the Constitution's ratification. Tawney knows that even as he tells a different story in Dred Scott. So he twists history. He twists the law, essentially, of the country. He he tells a story that suits his conclusion, um, but it's not one that I think even he 
um, could ultimately defend. The Constitution Center itself, who's tweeting along with this, uh, tells us that two of the fiercest Supreme Court dissents come from Dred Scott. We told you that the two dissenting justices read their dissents out loud over the course of two days, and ultimately Justice Curtis, one of the two, resigned from the court in protest over this. That's right. Now, a very short term on the court, six years, he was very upset. You read his opinion. It's not, only, it's not a typical dissent. It's an angry dissent. Um, you get the sense that he is saying more than I disagree with the majority here. I, he's saying more than I think you're wrong, Justice Taney. Factually, look at the record. Look at all of the data that Montgomery Blair, Blair has put forward. Look at the arguments that I've presented to you. It's not just that. I think the real problem here is that Justice Curtis views Justice Taney as uh, moving forward a political agenda. And that strikes a sort of institutional uh, core within Justice Curtis that he just can't stomach that. So for our last 15 minutes, the important legacy of this case. So uh, the reaction to the court's decision was described as explosive uh, on both sides of this. Soon thereafter, the famous Lincoln-Douglas campaign for Senate in Illinois, almost the entire Lincoln-Douglas debates were, were fashioned, were argued over the Dred Scott case. I'm going to have you tell the story about the rise of the Whigs to Nash, I mean, uh, the descent of the Whigs and the rise of the Republican Party. Well, before that, I, I do want to say something that happened during the course of those debates, which I think is really important, um, is that you have... Lincoln, who now is in the position to say something that is new in, in public discourse on the slavery question, and that is that slavery is evil. He now has the ability to take the moral high ground, and that gives him a new standing. Um, and he argues with, uh, with uh, Douglas on this point, and he says, look, just because I don't want a woman to be, in, to be my slave doesn't mean that I also want her to be my wife. She can be left alone. And so he's beginning to change the discourse a little bit here, suggesting two things. One, that he does believe that slavery is morally evil, but also he's hedging a little bit on the citizenship question. He's suggesting that maybe the conservative unionists are right, that emancipation doesn't necessarily mean equal citizenship. So what about Dredd and Harriet Scott? They mm. lost their case. What happened to them next? Well, we know that in some sense the story ends with the Scots ultimately um, winning their freedom, um, not by way of a court suit, um, but by way of their longstanding relationships um, with the Blow family. Mm -hmm. um, and so ultimately, um, Emerson's um, family will cede um, their property interests in the Scots um, back to the Blows. Um, they will, as we said earlier, um, take their 1,000 piastres right. um, compensation for giving up the property interest in the Scots. Um, and the family will settle back into life as free people um, in the city of St. Louis. Dredd becomes a minor celebrity. Um, he resists um, enticements. Um, some want him to go on the speaker's circuit. Um, the case is that important. He has become a household name in many ways. Um, someone who might be very useful for the ongoing anti-slavery um, work in the United States. But they resist that. Um, he accepts an appointment um, as, a, as a doorman in a hotel in yeah, St. Louis. A porter at the Barnum Hotel. And, yeah. um, and Harriet um, herself um, goes back to the work in a sense she's always done, um, but this time she's able to work and control her own wages. Um, and they continue to raise their girls. Um, they are um, sought after um, from time to time by curious journalists. 
Um, we're grateful to some of them because the photographs that we have of the Scots are um, result from a curious and persistent journalist who brings them a, to a photo studio to have their portraits taken. Um, but for me, one of the most poignant um, encounters with um, Harriet Scott and a journalist comes um, as Dredd himself is ailing. As you mentioned, he will die um, within 18 months of this decision. Um, and she tells the reporter, um, in essence, just just leave the old man alone, right? Just leave him at peace, right? I mean, that part of what we want um, is to be out of the limelight, right? Is to be away from the strife um, and, um, and to live our lives as a, a, a private family. So if you go to that part of the country to learn more about this, you'll find out that the great-great-granddaughter of the Scots, Lynn Jackson, is involved in preserving their history. You're going to meet her next in our next piece of video. We're standing in Calvary Cemetery at Dred Scott's final resting place. He was originally buried in Wesleyan Cemetery, which was at the corner of Grand and Laclede. He was buried there in 1858. Taylor Blow, who freed him, decided that he did not want his friend to stay unmarked and unknown. He moved him here to Calvary Cemetery, and he actually bought three plots so that Dred could be properly buried, properly meaning that a black person could not be buried next to a white person. So the two plots next to Dredd guaranteed that. His wife died 18 years later, and she is not buried here, but buried in Greenwood Cemetery. Greenwood was only two years old when Harriet died in 1876, a brand new cemetery, primarily for African Americans. And it was an honor for her to be there, and that is where she resides at this time. Prior to knowing where Harriet was buried, however, a cenotaph was placed here for her by the Elijah P. Lovejoy Society. This cenotaph honors her as a co-plaintiff of the Dred Scott decision, a mother, and a patriot. So those are the closing days and the memorial of the Scots. Now, what happened to Roger Tawney? Well, next you're going to listen to a clip from Jeffrey Rosen, who is the president of the National Constitution Center, talking about the rest of, Je of Chief Justice Tawney's life after this momentous decision. Roger Tawney is a constitutional tragedy. He was viewed as being uh, moderate uh, when it came to the balance between state and federal power and uh, w was, was well thought of until Dred Scott. And as Justice Scalia said, the drama of how Dred Scott tarnished his reputation. Justice Scalia invokes a portrait in the Harvard Law School library that shows Tawney with sort of sad eyes, who seems to be reflecting on the great tragedy of this decision, shows us how important a single case can be. By the end of his career, Tawney was reduced to wandering the streets of Washington, personally handing out copies of a decision checking Lincoln's power to suspend the writ of habeas corpus that he had printed himself. And one other thing to talk about with uh, Roger Taney and his memory is that today he continues to be controversial. If you go to the State House in Annapolis, there is a statue of Roger Taney at the entrance to the State House. There is a debate going on in Maryland about whether or not that should be moved or removed. And we found over the weekend news from Frederick, Maryland, and we're going to show you that next, a headline in the Frederick paper, that the uh, statue that they have outside Frederick City Hall over the weekend was vandalized uh, with red paint being put on it. So what are your thoughts about this long legacy of, of Roger Taney and, and how he is viewed in American society? 
you know, this is part of um, this link takes us back to Dred Scott because um, it's not only in the 21st century that Tawney's memory is controversial. Um, Charles Sumner, um, after Tawney's death in 1864, um, commits himself to defeating any attempt to appropriate funds that would uh, provide then for the bust of Tawney to be placed in the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, Sumner fights those um, attempts um, time and again um, in um, in Congress. Um, so today, um, these questions are, of course, cloaked in 21st century terms, um, a movement called Black Lives Matter, um, controversy over the flying of the Confederate, what is said to be the Confederate flag in the United States, and Tawney's image, Tawney's likeness, is once again um, said by some to symbolize um, or glorify right a past um, that should not be honored in this public way. At the State House in Maryland, of course, we have dueling monuments, if you will, hmm. because um, in 1996 we get um, Thurgood Marshall, right. And so now um, the two, right, of Maryland's great Supreme Court justices, um, they're side by side. Um, but clearly somebody over the weekend in Frederick had a different idea about how to um, publicly enact their um, critique of Tawney. We have about 10 minutes left. What should Roger Tawney's legacy be? I, unfortunately, Roger Tawney doesn't have a choice in the matter. I mean, he has, after Dred Scott, he has tied himself to this pro-slavery nationalist movement uh, so tightly. That movement dies with the Confederacy. And so he's forever linked with that. Um, Roger Tawney uh, engaged in fairly dishonest representations of history um, at the highest levels of government, at the highest level of the court. That can't be undone. Um, he's ruined the reputation of the court during that period um, by signaling that the audacity that he and the rest of the justices could decide the most volatile political question um, in a way and end up on the wrong side of history. Um, I, I, you know, I, I have a portrait that's similar to the one that you showed the viewers earlier in my office. Um, it's one that I show my students every time that I teach the Dred Scott decision, mainly because it does really demonstrate, as uh, Jeff Rosen uh, uh, mentions, just the, how much of the weight the Dred Scott decision uh, weighed on this man. John, uh, Charles John Klaus uh, writes on Facebook, the very makeup of the U.S. Constitution led to the Civil War. The founding fathers kicked the slavery decision down the road until the issue finally boiled over. Do you agree? Slavery is in the Constitution um, at its inception in provisions like the Three-Fifths Clause, the Fugitive Slave Clause, um, the ban on interference with the international slave trade. Um, so yes, um, as President Obama has put it, right, our original sin, right, embodied in the Constitution. Um, and there's no question that um, 19th century Americans confront again and again and again, including in Dred Scott, um, the profound um, moral, political, but also legal dilemma that is slavery. We told you that the Justice Curtis, who was one of the two dissenting justices in Dred Scott, resigned from the court. Gregory Peake on Twitter tells us that the other dissenting justice, John McLean, was a leading presidential candidate for the Republican Party in 1856. 
So, so much interesting stuff going on with this. Earlier, one of our callers mentioned Montgomery Blair. He went on to serve in Lincoln's cabinet as the postmaster general. Uh, and he was, of course, the Blair of Blair House, as that caller mentioned. Let's hear from Myra in Forest Hill, Maryland. Go ahead, please. Hi, I just had a quick question. Um, in what ways has the Dred Scott decision um, influenced how the Supreme Court rules decisions today? Thank you. Is there an influence on how it rules today? Oh, absolutely. As I said at the top of the, the, the program, um, in some ways, Dred Scott is the ultimate anti-precedent. It, it's a lesson um, in terms of what you shouldn't do as a court, what kinds of mistakes you ought to avoid. Uh, and Justice, Bri- Justice Breyer has spoken to that as well. Um, but at the same time, if you've probably noticed, the Supreme Court has to decide difficult questions from time to time, whether it's gay marriage uh, or partial birth abortion. These are difficult cases uh, and issues that the court has to decide. Many of them are political questions or have a political valence. Uh, but the court, I think, is, knows to be very careful and cautious in how it proceeds uh, in dealing with those difficult cases. Obamacare is another one. Uh, the Affordable Care Act. These are all cases that are very challenging, political, politically charged questions. And the court knows that it can only do so much in that regard or it risks doing making the same mistakes that Justice Tani made. Well, you mentioned Justice Breyer. Our final clip of this program is Justice Breyer on the legacy of the Dred Scott decision. Let's watch. Because this case says, don't try the politics. Don't try it. There is a theory that what Taney was trying to do was to avoid the Civil War. His friends in Congress had been telling him that if you can get this thing decided once and for all by an institution with the prestige of the Supreme Court, people will accept it. It will bring peace to the nation. He believed that, perhaps, if he was being political. And to me, what it suggests is, don't be political for two good reasons. Three, one, it's wrong. Two, the whole point of this institution that Hamilton set up was to have a group of people who weren't politicians who would be deciding this. Because if you wanted politicians to decide it, give the job to Congress. But third, and perhaps just as important, is if judges are going to decide things on a political basis, remember they're terrible politicians. There isn't one I've ever seen that's any good at it. I mean, if you want to be, they're good politicians, but they're not judges. They have life in politics. And if Taney was being political, Remember, he's about the worst politician you ever saw because he brought about the exact opposite of the objective that he was trying for. If he wanted a peaceful nation, if anything, he helped produce a war. Did Roger Taney and the Dred Scott decision produce a war? Well, you know, as as Martha said earlier, sometimes that impact can be overstated, but here's what we do know. We do know that Justice Taney most forcefully rejected the idea of black citizenship. He did that unapologetically. That enraged people who were abolitionists, that enraged the supporters uh, of free blacks. The secessionists were emboldened by this decision, uh, right? The ones who wanted to succeed, wanted to push even harder on nationalizing slavery, were emboldened by this decision. It raised the temperature of sectional politics. Um, But we also know that also created the preconditions that were necessary to be able to establish conclusively black citizenship, the 14th Amendment, the Civil Rights Act of of 1866. Uh, So 
Did it bring about a civil war? No, there were many other uh, contributing factors to the civil war, but it certainly elevated the temperature and was a contributing factor and, and, and gave us the preconditions for equal citizenship. I, I'm going to take a last call and then we'll get closing comments from you on the significance of this case and how people should think about it. Let's hear from David in Rochester, New York. Hi, David, you're on. Hi, yes, uh, the home of Frederick Douglass. Uh, yes, I have a uh, book called The Dred Scott Case by Don Fehrenbacher. Apparently won the Pulitzer Prize in 1979. It's, is that book still uh, relevant, or are there more up-to-date books that you would recommend? Thank you. Thank you. Just today, I, I tweeted out that I was rereading Fehrenbacher this afternoon, mm-hmm. and it continues to be, I think, a masterful treatment of the Dred Scott case. Now, there are questions that it elides, and um, among those are um, these much more human dimensions of the case. The story of the Scott family was not one that Fehrenbacher um, really told in any particular detail, so we know a great deal more about that today. But I would say still, for me, Fehrenbacher is a book we go back to. It's an excellent text. It captures the politics masterfully. the other thing is Fehrenbacher continues to write elsewhere. We have an essay uh, written by him uh, more recently in a book that marked the sesquicentennial of the Dred Scott decision, um, and that one's available as well. So I would say look at that book, but also look for anything else the man has written. He really made a significant contribution uh, to thought on Dred Scott. If you don't have time to read entire books on the case, I do want to tell you about one uh, guide to this series that we've published, Selling It at Cost. And it is a landmark case. It's just the 12 cases that are in this series. Uh, the case's descriptions are written by veteran Supreme Court Justice, uh, excuse me, Supreme Court reporter Tony Morrow. Uh, and uh, you can get a capsule summary of each of the cases as we progress through the series. Go to our website at cspan.org, landmark cases. You'll also see much more of the video than we were able to show you tonight of all the places that we visited attached to the 12 cases. So if you want to dig in deeper, there's two opportunities to do it. Okay, Martha Jones, you have the floor as we close here. What should people think about this case after spending 90 minutes listening to it? Summarize the important things to take away. I think there are two things. One is we don't have to look backwards to appreciate um, what a failure Dred Scott was. Tawny himself knew this, and in fact, he pens what was often, well, for a long time, was called the, a secret opinion. Um, he writes a second Dred Scott decision, hoping that another case will come and that he can clarify his position and that he can make good. Um, now, the case might not have given us a civil war, but it required a constitutional revolution. Right? It, it set in place this bar against free black citizenship Um, that had to be resolved by this nation. And it was the Civil War that gives us the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Um, But whatever the course of history might have been, that revolution was necessary for the nation to go forward. Well, that's it for our discussion on Dred Scott. Thanks to both of you for being here. And thanks to you at home for all your questions and for watching us tonight. We'll be back next week with the third in our Landmark Cases.
Our Landmark Cases series continues next Monday. We'll look back at the slaughterhouse case involving state-run monopolies. The Supreme Court ruled 5-4 in 1873 that the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment does not protect the right to labor. Therefore, the state of Louisiana did not violate the 14th Amendment when it granted a monopoly to a government-run slaughterhouse. That's live at 9 p.m. Eastern on C-SPAN. You can learn more about C-SPAN's Landmark Cases series, which explores the human stories and constitutional dramas behind some of the Supreme Court's most significant decisions. Go to cspan.org slash landmarkcases. From the website, you can find C-SPAN's Landmark Cases book, featuring background, highlights, and the legal impact of each case. Written by veteran Supreme Court journalist Tony Morrow and published by C-SPAN in cooperation with CQ Press, Landmark Cases is available for $8.95 plus shipping. That's at cspan.org slash landmarkcases.